verses 32 to 49. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land under the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good evening. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service this evening. As I, as I came in to church today, I think it was Stella from Guest Services, she greeted me by saying, Happy Good Friday. And it sounded a little weird, <laughs> and I was like, oh, Happy Good Friday. I, and Pastor Aaron touched on this in the, in the beginning of the service, but sometimes we don't know how to feel on this day. On the one hand, it is a happy day. Oh, happy day when, when Jesus washed my sins away. It is happy, but it is also a death that we honor and we remember. And we're going to do that together this evening. It's been a rough week. Uh, this past Tuesday, and Pastor Aaron mentioned this as well, uh, our city was rocked by yet another act of senseless violence. And I think this one hit closer to home for many of you who live or work in Brooklyn. And all of us, we know people who do. It was another painful reminder of how broken our world is. Watching the videos online, videos of repeated gunfire in the subway, seeing and hearing the fear and the panic of the people in the car, it, it's horrifying that something that is such a routine and everyday part of life in New York. Riding the subway can be so dangerous. 
I've heard many of you sharing about that first subway ride after Tuesday's events. But it's also true that human beings have a remarkable capacity to adapt to suffering. Acute suffering, it will shake us momentarily. But soon enough, we're able to continue on, to live on, to find things to either distract or comfort us. It's kind of like when you drive past a really bad car accident and you think to yourself, oh, I better drive carefully from now on. But soon enough, you're speeding again. and You've forgotten all about it. I've shared in the past uh, that on 9-11, I spent the entire day in lower Manhattan uh, looking for my friend who worked on the 93rd floor of the North Tower. And uh, some of us, we went from hospital to hospital, hoping against hope that we would find him. We called every hotline. We checked every website. We visited every hospital that we could think of. And at the end of the day, I ended up just walking back uptown uh, to campus at Columbia where I was an undergrad. I was shell-shocked. And I I just walked in silence. I, I didn't know what to say. And one thing I'll never forget about that day is that the further uptown I got the city started to look different. You know, downtown, people were just kind of staggering around, not knowing what to say. At the hospitals, doctors and nurses were just waiting outside, not knowing what to do. But as I got past about Times Square, as I got into Lincoln Square, I started to see people laughing and drinking coffee at sidewalk cafes. By the time I got back to Columbia, I sat and I watched my fellow students playing ultimate frisbee on the South Lawn. I know every 9-11 for the past 20 years, people say never forget, but even on that day, people were already forgetting and moving on. Especially In the age of social media, it's so easy to just scroll past the pain. It's so important for us then to regularly look to the cross. We need Good Friday. We need to put down our frisbees and our coffee cups and go downtown. To put ourselves in the places of ones who were crucified with Jesus. For the thieves next to Jesus, there were no comforts left. Nothing to distract them. Nothing to save them from sure death. They were forced to reckon with the cold, hard truth of death and judgment. And even there, one of the criminals uses his dying breaths to reject Jesus, finding some small, small comfort in hurting others. But the other is he's eventually able to see more clearly than he's ever seen in his life, forgiveness, hope, and love. It's precisely in this moment of greatest suffering that we can see 
the cross of Jesus Christ most clearly. Many of you are familiar with Corrie ten Boom. She was a Christian who hid Jews during the Holocaust in her home. And she and her family, they were caught and they were sent to a concentration camp. And she wrote about her experiences in her book, The Hiding Place. Listen to what she wrote. I, read, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest. How soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect, hands-at-sides position as we filed slowly past the phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at the least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence no more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. For Corey and her sister, it was a moment of great shame and suffering that they saw Jesus most clearly. We need these glimpses of Jesus as well. You know, earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 men. So probably at least twice that number of people total. Everybody is amazed at the miracle that they just witnessed. Jesus, with just a few loaves and small fish, is able to feed thousands, and they're all stuffed. They can't eat another bite. Twelve basketfuls of food is left over. And from a human perspective, you would think that this is the moment where the Jesus movement takes off. The crowds love him. They're calling him John the Baptist, Elijah, another prophet, come back to life. And at this ripe and perfect moment of expectation, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and come follow For us, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of the cross symbolizing sacrificial love. The cross is a good thing for us. Whether or not you're a Christian, you've grown up seeing the cross as the main icon of Jesus' death on behalf of the world. 
but not the crowds who were there. For the crowds, the image of the cross was one of horror. None of us here, I hope, has ever seen someone crucified. I think that if we were to actually witness a crucifixion, we would all vomit and turn away. But living in the first century in the Roman Empire, everyone there was very familiar with crucifixion. It was a part of everyday life. Crucifixion was by nature a very public spectacle. It was designed to be a deterrent against any resistance to Roman authority. So everyone there had walked past many people hanging from crosses. And for them, it represented shame, oppression, the worst way you could die. These people were looking to escape or be delivered from Roman oppression, not to embrace the worst manifestation of it. So what did these people, with stomachs full, what did they do? They all left. They walked away from Jesus because the last thing they wanted to do was to ever carry a cross. But the criminals who were crucified with Jesus, they couldn't leave. They had literally carried their crosses and were nailed to them. They could not ignore, they could not delay a decision about Jesus anymore. For us, we live today in the most affluent city in the richest country in the world. Compared to most of the rest of the world, everyone in this room lives in relative comfort, no matter how much you earn. We are the crowds who are full on bread and fish, coming to church largely for what it can provide for us. The reason Good Friday is crucial for us in particular is because we need these regular reminders to feel what it's like to be moments from death. Nowhere else to turn except for the crucified Savior next to us. So what I don't want to do today is what I've heard a lot of Good Friday sermons do, which is to go into detail about the crucifixion itself. I'm not going to elaborate on the nails, the dehydration, the asphyxiation. You can Google that on your own. Our passage and the parallel passages about the crucifixion in the other Gospels, they provide no details about the crucifixion itself. Luke, in particular, he was a physician. And he certainly had the expertise to provide those specifics. But all he says in verse 33 is, there they crucified him. Four words in the English. Even shorter, three words in the Greek. And I've done this in the past. I've preached sermons that focus entirely on the brutalities of the crucifixion. And what I realized that I was trying to do in these sermons was to elicit pity for Jesus. 
Poor Jesus on the cross. Look at all he went through for you. But Luke doesn't do that here. Because he's much more concerned about the reasons why Jesus died than on the manner in which Jesus died. You know, as Jesus is going to the cross, this group of women, they're following him, they're, they're weeping, they're mourning, and he turns to them and he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. The goal of Good Friday is not for us to pity Jesus. Jesus doesn't want our pity. He pities us, and he wants from us a decision. So I want to focus briefly on the three people who are crucified here. What are they hearing? What are they thinking? Rather than on what they are feeling physically. And we're going to look at Jesus, the thief who rejects him, and the thief who trusts him. What does Jesus see and hear on the cross? Jesus looks down from the cross. And he sees a large crowd of people gathered. And these are people who don't want to miss out on the spectacle. Jesus, the famous miracle worker, the famous teacher, the one who fed thousands, the one who healed the sick, the one who cast out demons. So many people are there out of morbid curiosity. They're indulging their, their voyeuristic impulses. They, they want to be part of the action. They're drawn just for the spectacle of it. And they're, they're caught up in this mob experience, watching the biggest celebrity of the day being executed. It's amusement. They're taking in the show. Perhaps they're participating by joining in in the insults and the mocking. Jesus sees them. Jesus also looks down and he sees the religious leaders. The ones who should have been first to herald his arrival, his mission. The ones who knew the scriptures backward and forward. They knew the prophecies. To know God's word so well, but to not know God at all when he was staring them in the face. And they were the Jewish leaders, leaders of God's own people. And yet, they turned him over to the Romans to be executed. And as they watch the Son of God die, they are filled with hatred and scorn Jesus sees them. Jesus sees them. Jesus looks down on Roman soldiers at his feet. The ones who beat him. The ones who drove the crown of thorns into his skull. The ones who laughed as they blindfolded him, took turns hitting him, and said, prophesy, who hit you? The ones who nailed him to the cross, 
And as Jesus hung naked in agony, he looked and he saw them casting lots over his remaining clothes. As he cries and screams in pain, he hears men playing games, laughing in amusement and sport. Jesus sees, Jesus hears them. Jesus looks to his right and to his left and sees the two criminals who are being crucified with him. Matthew, in his account, he tells us that even them, both of them, ridiculed and mocked Jesus. It's interesting how Matthew, Matthew says, even they taunted Jesus. Even they. You know, one of the, one of the best movies I've ever seen is, is a movie called A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. Uh, it's about an Austrian farmer who refuses to fight for the Nazis because of his Christian faith. And the conflict in the movie is whether or not he's willing to die for his convictions because he's a loving father and a husband. So does he die for his convictions at the expense of his family? That's the tension of the movie. And this isn't really a spoiler because the entire movie is driving to this, but he stands by his convictions and he is executed. And Malik, he captures the moments right before the protagonist's death so beautifully and hauntingly. As the main character, Franz, is waiting for his turn to go into the guillotine, Out of nowhere, he spontaneously embraces and kisses the man next to him who's about to die also. Complete strangers. They don't know each other at all. But there's such a desperate tenderness in that moment. Two people who are so afraid of what's coming, finding a sliver of comfort and support in one another. At the cross, Jesus has two other people going through the exact same thing. Surely they would understand. And yet, they find comfort in taunting Jesus. Jesus sees and hears them. And here's how Jesus responds He prays. He prays this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Curious crowds, hypocritical religious leaders, Roman soldiers, hardened criminals, all so lost, they have no idea what they're doing. Jesus prays for them, for their forgiveness. And this is why Jesus is dying, forgiveness. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, without any blemish or sin. He dies the death that all of these people deserve. Jesus pays the penalty of sin and death as a substitute so that by his sacrifice, God could forgive people like them. And may I add, people like us. (laughs) 
Jesus dies to make atonement on behalf of his people. And there are really only two possible responses to this. And we see it in the responses of the the two thieves. The first one responds by saying this, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself. This is not new. We've heard this before. A couple of verses earlier in verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. What we have in our passage is three times by three different groups of people, we hear the exact same thing. Save yourself. Save yourself. Religious leaders, Roman soldiers, hardened criminal. The thief, he, he, he hears what everyone else is saying. And he goes along with the crowd. He parrots what everyone else is saying. If you are who you say you are, then save yourself. Isn't it so interesting that the criterion for authenticity is saving yourself? If you can save yourself, then I'll believe. Then you'll be someone worth following. And this is why back in Luke 9, after Jesus feeds the crowd, they all leave. Because Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That sounded ridiculous to them. What we see here is that Jesus' ethic, it's entirely counterintuitive and countercultural. The world prizes the self. No matter what generation no matter what era you've lived in, no matter what culture you belong to. Look, look what we have here. We have Romans, Jewish leaders, crowds, criminals. These are groups who would never agree on anything. Yet they are united about this. One thing they can all respect that mirrors all of their values, the elevation of the self. The Romans, they valued power, authority. They would respect a leader who would elevate himself over everybody else. A leader who exercised power over everybody. The religious leaders, they were using religion to elevate themselves over everybody else. I obey the law. I know the scriptures. I am more righteous than you. And the criminal, it's easy. He broke the law to elevate himself and his lifestyle over others. And we see this in our world today as well. The Western world, for example, prizes the individual over and above everything else. What is the the secular creed of our day? Be true to yourself. Find your truth. Don't let anyone else, any institution, any religion, any family, any tradition define truth for you. 
You are the sole arbiter of truth. This is sacred in the West. And even in Eastern cultures, we have shame and honor-based cultures. And on the surface, they look very different. They look like they're not about the self. They're about family, collective advancement. But I see many Asian friends here. I don't need to convince you that Asian cultures seek to elevate the self through honor, through family, through social advancement. Whatever worldview, whatever philosophy you subscribe to, even if you're an atheist or a secular humanist, your highest virtue is the advancement of self. Self-realization, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. The reason everybody at the cross can unite against Jesus is that he embodies the very opposite of what they all value. The thief is thinking this. This guy can't even save himself. How could he save me? But the second thief, at first he ridiculed Jesus, just like everybody else. But then he says this in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Maybe it was when he heard Jesus praying. Praying for him. Maybe that's when he changes. He realizes one thing. Maybe the only thing. I don't think he understood substitutionary atonement. I don't think he has a grasp of justification by faith. He doesn't have a developed Christology. I think all he really knows is this. I deserve judgment, and this man here doesn't. Maybe there is forgiveness for me, even if Jesus doesn't save himself. That's all he knows. But it's enough. It's enough. He has nothing to offer Jesus, but still he asks Jesus this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal looks at Jesus, and Jesus doesn't look at all like a king. But yet the criminal has enough faith to recognize Jesus' power. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying this, King Jesus, I am guilty. Please save me. That's it. No baptism, no membership class, no offering, no service. King Jesus, I am guilty. Please save me. And King Jesus looks at him. And he promises, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. No conditions, no qualifications, no wiggle room, a declaration of salvation. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. I love that he says today. It is decisive, it is certain This is authority. 
you know, a few weeks ago in our community groups, I asked my CGs, how would you answer God if you died and you were at the pearly gates and God said, why should I let you into heaven? And I said, think hard because this is the most important question you will ever answer. And I said, if your answer is, or if your answer begins with I, I went to church, I was baptized, I cried at a youth retreat in 10th grade, I served, I gave money, I went on a mission trip, I, what you're doing is you're basing your salvation on your own works. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, did we not? For this criminal, there's no question. I did nothing. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, he says that this man's answer would be simply this. The man on the middle cross said I could come. I love that. The man in the middle cross said I could come. Our answer to the question of salvation must always and only be him. Did you know that the thief on the cross is the only person in the entire book of Luke who calls Jesus, Jesus. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't know the titles. He doesn't know Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, Messiah, Christ. He only knows one name, Jesus, but it's the right name. Because it's the name above every name. And everyone, the Bible tells us, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. I want to ask you today, do you know Jesus? Does he know you? How will you respond to this Jesus on the cross? Will you follow him or will you go along with the world and reject him? Will you see in Jesus a king who forgives Will you repent of your sins and trust in him alone for your salvation? Or, here's the other option, will you try to do it yourself? 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for us who are being saved. For the first thief and everyone else at the cross The cross was utter foolishness. But for the thief who was saved, it was the power of God. Not a power that the world understands, but a far greater power. Luke records Jesus' final words. Verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These are Jesus' final words. 
And don't we often picture Jesus dying on the cross passively, meekly, in weakness? But according to Luke, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. Jesus does not die in weakness, but in strength. He does not die with a whimper, but with a shout. He is a Savior who is mighty to save. We can trust him. We can trust him. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, even after we're saved, don't we have this tendency of we, we, we keep trying to go back to trusting in our own works? As Christians, we're, we're constantly struggling with trying to be our own saviors, adding to the work of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus died for me, but I'm righteous because of the things I do. I go to church, I read the Bible, I pray, I do good deeds. And when we don't do these things, what do we do? We beat ourselves up and we say, I'm a bad Christian. I'm so guilty. When we try to make Christianity about how faithful we are to Jesus, then we're getting it wrong. And it's deeply offensive to God. Do you ever think about that? It's deeply offensive to God. We're saying that Jesus' finished work on the cross, not enough. He needs me to add to it. Let me give you a, a ridiculous analogy. Let's say that I sacrificed one of my sons for you. I, I probably won't do that. But let's say I did. I, I sacrificed one of my sons for you, and you come up to me on a Sunday after service and you say, Pastor Gene, I really appreciate what you did. Here you go. This is a $5 gift card to Starbucks. Buy yourself a cup of coffee on me. That, that would be deeply, deeply wrong. Why? Because you're implying that, that my son's life and your $5 gift card, they are somehow of equivalent value. How dare you? And this is what we do when we bring our works before God and we trust in them rather than in the finished work of our Savior. The way it's supposed to work is this. We work in light of Jesus' finished work out of gratitude, knowing that we can do it because he has done it all. Jesus tells us that, uh, John tells us that Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. That means this, it's complete. Our debt is paid in full. No sin left. This should free us to live in a confidence and trust that no earthly power or threat can shake. Paul says this in Romans 8, my favorite verses in all of the scriptures. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
because of what he has done, it is finished, it is complete, it is done. And the mighty cross is proof that this is true. Good Friday is good indeed. Happy Good Friday to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. May we, like Paul, say, I resolve to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. May we throw our arms around the cross and never let go. May we trust completely in our Savior. No matter what outside threat comes, no matter what internal threat arises. Help us to know that his work is complete, that there is no sin left. Every drop of God's wrath has been downed by our Savior. He drank our damnation dry. Thank you for Good Friday.